Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Susan Bandes, Centennial Professor of Law Emeritus at DePaul University College of Law. We will discuss her article, Closure in the Criminal Courtroom, The Birth and Strange Career of an Emotion, which will be published in the Edward Elgar Research Handbook on Law and Emotion. So welcome to the show, Susan. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this paper, which uh, I found really moving and also a little bit, a little bit surprising in some ways. Uh, in particular, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the origins of the concept of closure in the criminal law, because I had no idea it was such a kind of recently developed concept. Yeah, sure. Exactly. I think closure sounds like something that's just been part of the landscape all along. And so I think um, most people have the same reaction you did, which is um, this idea that it was a new concept um, just 40 years ago, really. Uh, The end of the 1980s was when closure made its first appearance in the legal arena in, and it, it first came up in the capital punishment context. And it really was uh, something that the, the victims' rights movement, I want to say, um, advanced as, as, as a goal that people should take seriously, that victims are entitled to closure. And uh, the victims' rights movement uh, looked at, for example, victim impact statements, which I'll be talking about, I'm sure, um, and, and, you know, a little bit later in our discussion, uh, as a vehicle for providing closure. So closure, when you think of it that way, sounds like this very uh, deeply rooted psychological concept, something that's been around forever. But in fact, that's not the case at all. It really was something that that uh, was provided for the first time by the, the, the victims' rights movement. And even then, all, although I understood that it was a new concept or a relatively new concept for the criminal system, I just assumed for a long time that there must be a body of psychological evidence about closure that the legal system was borrowing from or, or, or extrapolating from. And I was really surprised to find out that that wasn't the case either, that in fact, closure really was not a psychological concept that when you start looking into the literature on healing and trauma and and, uh, what victims need, in fact, closure isn't really much of a developed concept there as well. So I think I would have to say that it was in the late 1980s that closure first cropped up in the legal arena in capital cases. Frank Zimmering actually did a a little chart where he he ran a, a search to find out about the use of closure in the criminal justice system. And he found that in 1989 was the first time it was it came up at all in a legal search. And within just a very few years after that, it, it started becoming part of the landscape. And what, what you just expressed, sort of I, thinking that it had been around for a long time, had already happened just a few years later. There was a, a poll just a few years after that asking people, uh, how important closure was. And a majority of people said that 
closure was a really important part of the criminal justice system and a good reason for capital punishment. So somehow it very quickly became became part of the landscape and sort of took on this coloration of uh, something that had been around for a long time and that looked really official. So when people talk about closure, what do they mean? I mean, has the concept sort of changed over time? Did different people seem to mean different things? You know, like what's the sort of substantive content of the context, uh, the concept of closure to the extent that it has one? Right. Yeah. Well, I have argued that closure can mean a number of different things. I've been calling it an umbrella term. It's a term that can encompass a number of different meanings. And I'm going to go through several of those in one second. But let me first say that that wouldn't necessarily be a problem for a term to have more than one meaning. Many terms do. But it's a big problem here because each one of the meanings that closure might have leads to particular reforms or changes that the criminal justice system is expected to make in order to give victims or their families closure. And so if we don't know what it is, if we can't disentangle several meanings, then we really have no way of determining whether this is something that, first of all, victims really can be given by the criminal justice system at all, and what effects giving certain rights to victims might have on this criminal justice system as a whole. So I'm going to talk about some of those meanings, and then I want to talk a little bit about why it's so problematic that we really don't know exactly what closure means when we use the term. So I would say that one very narrow and very kind of uh, traditional meaning that we might use for closure is that the criminal justice system is meant to be a vehicle for figuring out what happened in a crime, the open questions uh, of investigating a crime. For example, who killed somebody or you know, some of the really heartbreaking, tragic questions like what were, what were the, it, let's say in a murder case, what were the victim's last minutes like, um, did he suffer, that kind of thing. So sometimes when people talk about needing closure, they might mean I needed to know what happened. And I think I would say that that this kind of investigative function is a, is a very standard meaning or standard role of the criminal justice system. So that would be one thing that it could mean. Uh, what, what happened here? But, uh, and a second thing that closure could mean, although it hardly ever does mean this, is simply finality. But as you know, uh, finality is, is a very standard legal term. It, and it basically um, has to do with finishing up a case or, or coming to a point where we won't appeal anymore, that sort of thing. Closure doesn't really seem to mean just finality because the, law, the legal system already knows all about finality. It, it, it has a more psychological dimension or psychological sort of aura to it. So I think that what closure has come to mean largely has something more to do with healing and catharsis. It has more to do with the idea that we um, in the criminal justice system expect the criminal justice system to help victims or the families of victims in murder cases particularly to heal or to find catharsis. And, uh, and there's a few different ways that that can come about. So, for example, a victim impact statement, and the victim impact statement was one of the f- one of the first requests of the victims' rights movement, and 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 it would have to be counted as as a major 
victory of the victims' rights movement. Victim impact statements are now the law in every state and in the federal system as well, and in every common law country. So victim impact statements are here to stay. And one argument for the victim impact statement is that they provide closure to victims and their families by allowing them to speak in court about the pain and the loss that they've suffered, that they, they can they can provide a kind of healing or a kind of catharsis. And so that's one type of meaning of closure. And that's part of where things get complicated. So that leads to this other question, which is, is it going to be enough to, and maybe it will be, but is it going to be enough to speak of the loss in a courtroom? Uh, Or do you need some kind of a response to that speech? So for example, a particular sentence. So if a victim talks to the judge or to the jury about what what he suffered and gets no response from a judge, just gets sort of a blank look from a judge, or gets a sentence that is um, that is considered mild, then is the victim going to feel like he has closure or not? So there are a number of questions that arise here about what kinds of what what closure means. Uh, if it's just a chance to speak in an open courtroom, is it a chance to speak directly to the defendant? If you do that, do you need the defendant to respond? If you're speaking to a jury, do you need the jury to respond? So these are all different possible meanings of closure, and they each require different sorts of adjustments in the criminal justice system. It just seems to me that when victims and their families use the term closure, they're talking about an experience that they have themselves. But for example, when a, when a prosecutor or a judge uses the term closure, they're thinking about an experience that someone else is going to have, and maybe also using it potentially in like a strategic way to ask for something that they want to get within the system or to achieve some kind of goal that may be unrelated to the experience of the victims. Is is that a, an, a fair assessment of how closure ends up kind of meaning different things to different people? I think so. I think it's very fair. I think part of what's so complicated about thinking about closure and what I've done for this article in part is I've tried to read every every empirical study, every study about, about whether people do feel closure in the criminal justice system. And part of what's so complicated about it is that the media, for example, has really, um, has really gotten behind this concept and you read, and you read about closure constantly uh, in the papers uh, and, and whether victims have felt closure, the parts of the legal system have really gotten behind this concept as well. The uh, prosecutor, for example, will often argue that juries should juries in capital cases uh, should come back with a death sentence because that's the only kind of sentence that will give closure to the victim's families. So you do have this uh, very frequently prosecutorial agenda, uh, and the message there is the only way to really show respect for the family for the victim and help the victim's family is to come back with a death sentence. That's a way of giving closure. Now, as you quite properly point out, this may not at all describe the way that victims or their families themselves feel or what they want. 
victims and victims' families are, as as is no surprise to anybody, comp, a complex array, array of people who need different things, want different things, and also whose needs might change over time. So one of the things that I worry very much about is the idea that prosecutors may often use closure as a means of conscripting victims or victims' families to a, a certain vision of criminal justice that's, that's, uh, that seems to say the only way you can show respect is by coming back with what they would call the ultimate sentence or the harshest sentence. And at the point at which, first of all, victims may not feel that way, there's a really troubling history of victims being shunted to the side or ignored or sometimes not permitted to give victim impact statements or marginalized or made to feel as if they don't love the person they lost enough, if they don't want a death sentence. So if we are really worried about what victims in all their multiplicity and complexity, what they want, then I think that there's a really troubling disconnect between that and what prosecutors often say they want. Uh, One example was in the Boston Marathon case where uh, there was a family, the Richard family, um, who lost a son and, and, um, and other members of the family, the husband and the wife served, um, were um, subject to really grievous injuries. And the prosecutor used them as kind of the, the poster people for the death penalty and kept coming back to how important it was to give them uh, closure and do justice by coming back with a death penalty. It happened. They did not want the death penalty. but And they actually wrote a letter uh, to the U.S. Attorney's Office to that effect, but the jury never saw that letter. Uh, that And the jury instead was led to believe, based on the victim impact statements uh, that were given and the prosecutor's comments, that the best thing they could do to help all the families was to come back with the death sentence. So this is one of the things I worry about. Another thing I worry about, I, I wrote about closure uh, 10 years ago and said a lot of critical things about the idea and and worried about it being something that prosecutors were too often trying to foist on victims and their families. But coming back to it now, the, the thing that drew me back into this and that that really kind of fascinated me and troubled me was the idea that it's possible that we're seeing the birth of a new emotion, that even if closure started out as a plank in the victim's rights agenda and as something that the media and uh, prosecutor's offices were pushing, even though it wasn't a genuine emotion and it didn't have any emotional pedigree, that these years later, with the justice system really shaping emotional expectations, that people have come to believe that this is a genuine emotion. And that is interesting, but also troubling, because from what I've read, people now expect to feel it. And they feel that they've been promised that they would feel it if certain things happen. For example, if somebody is executed, Timothy McVeigh is an example, is executed, then they ought to feel closure. 
Now, as you said earlier, we don't necessarily know what it means. But if what it means is a closing the book, a feeling of peace and a feeling of just moving on and leaving something behind, I think that most victims would heartily reject that as something that could ever happen when you've lost somebody. Doesn't work that way. There may be things that could happen that would make you feel better, but it's not really a closing of a book. You know, it's more of a some kinds of healing, but not something so definitive. So people start, at, at, in some cases, getting re-traumatized because they thought, once I get to this point, I will have closure. And then they get to that point and they feel they didn't get what they were promised and they feel even worse. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, as you described earlier, I mean, it seems like in a lot of ways, the the kind of public popular concept of closure in relation to criminal law is a narrative sort of created by the victims' rights movement, but kind of conveyed to the public, primarily via the media, as something that people ought to expect in a context that they never actually expect to find themselves in. And I wonder if if you see a kind of potential for kind of internal conflict there between sort of people's kind of narrative understandings of how they ought to feel uh, in relation to the kind of things that happen in the course of the criminal law process and what their actual lived experiences are like. Yes, no question about it. I, I think that Arlie Hochschild, the sociologist who's written really brilliantly about emotion, talks about feeling rules, the way that we all have scripts that we learn in the social world as we grow up about what we ought to feel, what we're supposed to feel. And we uh, often, these rules are often implicit, but that doesn't mean you don't get punished or don't suffer if you violate them. And so one worry I have here is that, that there are these certain feeling rules that now apply to closure. So one of those is if you really care about a victim, you will want him to get the ultimate punishment, or excuse me, you will want the person who harmed him to get the ultimate punishment. And that's the real the way to help him. And that's the way to respect him. And that uh, in the in the murder situation, in, in the murder context, that an execution is the only real way to give closure. And so people who deviate from those expectations, such as people who just are, for one reason or another, opposed to the death penalty, either as an abstract matter or even in the particular case, may be cast as not sufficiently loving and caring. There was a Columbine victim's dad, who I talked about in my article, who said everyone expected him to feel closure after um, after justice was done. And he started to feel as if, because he wasn't getting over it quickly enough, that people were really impatient with him. And they kept sort of demanding that he feel closure. And he, he took it not as any kind of a... Uh, gesture of of caring or empathy, but as a demand and, and, and as a sort of accusation that he had broken the feeling rules that he was expected to feel. And I think part of what gets lost a lot when we think about the criminal justice system is that it has 
huge power to shape emotional expectations. So let me go back a minute and talk about that a bit. I want to make three points about that. The first is I study the role of emotion in the law. And I've been doing this for a few decades now. And one of the most frustrating and fascinating things about talking to lawyers or to most people, but especially to lawyers about law and emotion is that people think that that's an oxymoron. They think, okay, there are some emotions that creep into law once in a while, but obviously that's a bad thing. And obviously we want to keep that to a minimum. And law really is about logic and reason and not emotion. And so I spend a substantial amount of time saying not all emotions are good. There are some bad emotions and good emotions in law, but they are in there. We're not getting rid of them. They're not going away. And we have to acknowledge them. So that's sort of my first task here. But um, in criminal law, there is a second line of reasoning, which is there are these deeply rooted emotions that people have always felt. And for example, the one that crops up most frequently is the desire for vengeance, kind of anger and the desire and the eye for an eye trope and the desire for vengeance. And the idea a number of people have argued is that if this is so deeply rooted in our psyches and in our history, then somehow the criminal law has to give voice to it. That's not to say they have to just give on thinking voice to it. The idea is that the criminal justice system will mediate it a bit and domesticate it a bit, but that it can't simply ignore it or it will lose its legitimacy. And so my argument is that, well, first of all, I am a little critical of that idea that, of course, we don't have to mirror deeply rooted emotions. We have to evaluate them before we decide whether to do that. But more than that, the criminal justice system has the power to shape emotions. And so I think that that's what we're seeing here is that the criminal justice system in tandem with the media uh, and the courts has been shaping these emotions, has, has shaped the idea that closure is something that, that the criminal justice system is in t- is capable of giving to victims and that victims um, can be promised this thing. And there are other ways to go. I think that the criminal justice system could go in a different direction and say, let's think about shaping other emotions. Let's think about maybe that the ultimate punishment doesn't have to be the most draconian punishment. And one fascinating thing that I would love to see more research on, there's only been a little, is if you look at a state that's not a capital punishment state, where they can't promise anybody capital punishment, is the idea that capital punishment itself is the ultimate punishment and will really make people feel healed and will be a form of catharsis? Or is it just that we need to give a serious punishment, maybe the most serious punishment the state can offer? So. It'd be fascinating, I think, to compare death penalty states with non-death penalty states and see what is the message that the state can give us about what it takes to show respect for the harm that was, that uh, that is suffered and to show that the state takes it seriously, but perhaps not to give the most draconian sentence possible. Mm. Well, you point, you point to some really interesting 
ironies in your paper as well. I mean, one being that to the extent we sort of ideologically have been presented with capital punishment as the ultimate enclosure, to the extent we think of closure as finality, it actually seems to make that finality much farther from from reach than alternative potential punishments. And then one point you made that hadn't occurred to me, but it's, I think, an important one is, you know, to the extent that closure is sort of synonymized with the death penalty, um, the only kind, you know, the only participant who can never get closure, like in the full, most robust sense then would be the actual victim in the sense that, you know, the death penalty is only available in in murder cases. So in in a sense, it sort of seems like it devalues the, the sort of relevant sort of key to closure for the people for whom we might think it would be most important. Yeah, no, those are really great points. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance to go back and elaborate on those. So the first one that you mentioned is, is something that I found fascinating when I was reading the very slender amount of empirical evidence that's out there. There, there were some really interesting things when, when people were asked about closure. One thing that I found was that people have really don't think anymore about whether closure is a legitimate thing. They assume it is. And if they don't feel it, they feel that it must be something that they are doing wrong or that something could change. And it was really hard to tease out. A number of people felt like, I will feel so much better when this is all over. And in many cases, it appeared that they weren't going to feel better because the defendant had finally received his final sentence. They were going to feel better because they didn't have to be dragged through this really heart-wrenching, horrible, high-profile proceeding anymore. So as you say, this is quite the irony because it may be that capital punishment is actually what is preventing people from moving on and feeling some kind of healing rather than what's helping with it. And the other point that you make is also really important, which is capital punishment is not an option in most states. And even in the states where it is an option, it's only an option for a very small number of crimes. So once we hold that out as the ultimate sign of respect for the victim, it that that has its own special kind of, of pain, which is you're telling most people that that's not something that's going to be available to them. But Jody Madeira, who um, spent several years interviewing the Oklahoma City, a number of the Oklahoma City, City bombing survivors and families of those who lost people in the Oklahoma City bombings, found that people use closure, they've repurposed the term. The term probably is not going to go away. My real argument is let's have a lot more clarity about what exactly it is we're asking the term to do. And she found that what people really wanted was a a sense of control, a sense that they were being respected, a sense that they were being kept in the loop. Uh, It wasn't, they did not experience closure as something that could be given to them. They weren't thinking of themselves as passive recipients. They were thinking of a participatory process where they had some control over what was going on and people cared about their about and respected their opinions. So whether the term closure really helps people get where they need to be, I would uh, I, I would express a 
whole lot of skepticism about that. And and I, I would actually argue, and I and I conclude my paper with this. I, I started thinking, where should we go from here? It may be that we're stuck with closure. It may be that it's too late to go back and say this term is just confusing everybody. It sounds psychological. It, it sounds like it has a patina of authority. But the fact of the matter is that it really doesn't refer back to anything helpful. And it's just a source of confusion. It may be too late to do that. There are some things I would like to know for example, I would like more comparison of, of places that don't have the death penalty with places that do. And I would like to see more studies that look at people over time. But I ended up concluding that maybe closure is not the right question. Maybe because if we continue to tell people that there's this thing in the world out there that they can feel and people continue to feel really uh disappointed and, and let down and even betrayed when they don't get it. Maybe the idea is that we should just ask a different question, which is what do victims need and what do victims' families need and what's the best way to get that? And you know, as a former defense attorney, I can't help but ending by saying, and having asked those questions, which are really, really important questions, we also can't stop there. We have to ask, and to what extent do what victims need does what victims need fit within our criminal justice system? Can we do it? Is it the best place to do it? And what are the other effects going to be? Is it going to interfere, for example, with, with other goals like the right to a fair trial? So I think that closure might actually be, in many ways, just the, the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Well, so in closing, Susan, I mean, it struck me while I was reading your paper that, you know, as you point out, this concept is one that kind of originated in the victims' rights movement and in many respects is sort of, at least in some of its incarnations, associated with kind of punishment and consequences. And yet it does seem to me that there's a new developing strand in the victims' rights movement of people who don't feel that punishment and consequences are necessarily consistent with what they find healing and beneficial emotionally and psychologically. And I wonder if you think that this is sort of a tension or conversation that, among other things, has to happen within the scope of the victims' rights movement to kind of make sense of sort of what's good for victims and how to sort of account for the different needs of different people under these circumstances. Right. So, yes, most definitely. So first of all, I think that, and I don't mean to say, by the way, that capital punishment is the only issue here. I've talked about it a lot today, but uh, closure certainly goes well beyond that. And there's a lot more that I could say in other fields, but I, I do want to say one last thing about, about capital punishment, which is that in many ways it was on the wane and maybe hopefully still is. Uh, but closure has become a rather convenient way to recast it because people were getting kind of kind of skeptical and maybe kind of uh, tired of, of the sort of idea of retribution through capital punishment. And when a prosecutor comes in and says, but guess what? You can actually 
be a good guy and support capital punishment because you are helping the victims and their families. You are helping to heal. And so this has become, uh, in my mind, uh, a rather uh, convenient for the prosecuting prosecutorial agenda way of repurposing capital punishment. And what I worry about, getting back to your question, is that you make the victims' rights movement and victims in general into a kind of a monolith there. And we know that they are not a monolith, that people need all kinds of different things. And there are a number of victims' groups that don't that make it clear that not all victims want most draconian punishments for a whole variety of reasons. I mentioned earlier the the uh, Richard family. They actually, in the Oklahoma City bombing case, they were not anti-capital punishment. They just did not think that a capital trial, for reasons that we've been talking about today, would help them heal. They thought it would keep the spotlight on on the defendant. They thought it would drag them through years and years of, of horrible proceedings that wouldn't be helpful. Other people do oppose capital punishment, but the victims' rights movement, I think, has become increasingly sensitive to the idea that that this is and has to be a big tent, that if we are talking about victims being able to express their true feelings and find a kind of healing that helps them, that it can't be done in a particularly cookie-cutter way, that there has to for a whole range of these sorts of emotions. Mm. Well, Susan, thank you so much for coming on the program. I really enjoyed reading your paper and talking to you about it, and I look forward to reading more of your work. It was really my pleasure, and just a, you're a wonderful interviewer, and I'm really just so happy to be here. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Barbara Allen, 
she went on through and through the town. She heard his death bells ringing, and every stroke they seemed to say, Oh, cruel Barbara Allen. To the east, she looked to the west. She saw his corpse a come in. Oh, set him down for me, she cried, that I may gaze upon him. The more she looked, the more she grieved. She bursted out to crying, saying, Pick me up and carry me home, for I feel like I am dying. Buried Willie in the old churchyard and Barbara in the new one. And from Willie's grave there grew a rose, and from Barbara's a green briar. They grew, they grew to the old church wall and could not grow any higher. And there they tied in a true love's knot the rose bush and the briar. 